Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions to the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What? evil is this that has taken place among you now therefore give up the men the worthless fellows in Gibeah that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel but the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of the brothers the people of Israel then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel and the people of Benjamin mustered out of the cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel, inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped at Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up in the battle lines against them at Gibeah, and the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went out against them of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up. For tomorrow I will give them into your hands. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at the other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They're routed before us as at the first. 
But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of the place and set themselves in array of Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Marah Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel that day. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they would, when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely the defeat of war in the first battle when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke. The Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up and smoked to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them. Of, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, instructed them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, the beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, would you help us make application from your word? Would you help us see what you have us to see from your word? Not just for them then, but for us today. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven us, that you would anoint your words by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The world is, is filled with hurting people, isn't it? If you look around you, you don't have to look very far to see that people are hurting all around. So many people have been affected by the ravages of sin. So many people have been hurt and mistreated. So many people have been abused by others and who've given into the evil that lurks in the heart of humanity. According to a study back in 2005, it's reported that statistically that over 250,000 people report cases of rape to police every year. 400,000 people a year are killed by homicide. And so in the midst of egregious amounts, egregious numbers, sin all around, lots of people being hurt everywhere, you have to wonder, what about the one person? What about, does God care about each and every person? Or is everybody just a number out there? Does God really care about the suffering of one individual? I think part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason the, the author of the book of Judges, and ultimately God, the author of the book of Judges, he had this account written and, and last week's account written in response to one person's death. It was to help us see that God really cares about 
each and every person who suffers. God cares when even just one person is abused. God cares when even one person is murdered. He cares also about the cause of such grievous sin. And he calls us to respond. And that's what we see in this passage. God calling people to respond. Him bringing people together because he cares about even the suffering of one person. God cares about the suffering. And he calls us to respond, to put that sin away. Put the cause of suffering. The cause of all suffering, it's it's actually the sin that remains on all of our hearts. And God calls his people to put that sin away, to deal with it, to deal with sin decisively. And he calls his people to fight sin as well. And these two chapters in the whole book of Judges, they take up one of the largest spaces of any narrative about a single person or in response to a single person. And they show us that that one unnamed woman who was murdered, she's important. This chapter and the prior chapter, they're all in response to the abuse and the murder of this one unnamed woman and they reveal something really important to us. They reveal that even when others don't care, even when her husband really didn't care, God cares. God cares when even one is evilly sinned against. God cares when even one is evilly sinned against. He cares about each and every person. Her suffering was not insignificant. Her suffering didn't go unnoticed by God. Her suffering was what God used actually to incite a whole nation to want to get serious about sin. Because God cares about even one who's evilly sinned against. At the end of the previous chapter, her husband, the husband of the concubine, this this Levite, after he had sent her out to the mob and she was abused, left for dead, he packed her up, he took her home. At some point she died and he gruesomely cut her up and sent her out to all of Israel. And that's, that's where this context is is the people responding to that gruesome, those gruesome messages that were sent all throughout Israel. And they are incited because God really cares when one person suffers so much so that he wanted the whole nation to respond to this egregious evil. The shock of receiving the body parts of this murdered concubine, it had a desired effect. From the very far north to the far south, they all assembled together. This gross evil, it sparked outrage, it sparked disgust. It it prompted action on behalf of the people of Israel. Because God cares, even when one person suffers, when one person is abused, he cares. And he calls them to arms, and they come together before the Lord God cares enough to ignite an entire country's conscience. And he used this this suffering to ignite the conscience because he doesn't overlook injustice. He doesn't overlook suffering. And he actually brought justice for this woman. He brought a whole nation together to show that he cares about one person, only even one person when they're evilly sinned against. And he he brings them together to, to carry out justice. Now the Levite, as he's telling this story, you might have noticed, he tells the story, but he leaves himself out of the picture. He doesn't say that he turned her over to them. He doesn't say that he was complicit in her death, but, but he tells this story. He has a purpose of revenge, but God has a purpose to even use his, his lie, the way that he tells it. He's, he's glossing over the truth, but God even uses that to bring about justice. 
So God, he brings them all together as one man, as it tells us in verse 8, and they respond. Now this is unusual because we haven't seen this kind of response from one person being sinned against in, in the entire book before, but now we're seeing that somehow God has stirred them up in such a way that they're coming together as one before the Lord. Something as well that they haven't done in the book of Judges, or at least not in a long time. And they, they commit to getting together and providing provisions, and they gather together as one man in response to just, just one woman being abused and murdered. And that was right. It was good. They should have responded this way. They should have responded because that's actually God cares. That's the heart of God. He cares when each person is abused and suffers and dies. He cares when even one is evilly sinned against. He cared about her. And he cares about all who are sinned against. He, he cares about you. He cares about the cause of evil as well. He, he doesn't want people just to care about someone who suffers and is abused. He wants people to address the cause of evil too. You see, they were disobedient. They didn't fight to get rid of the evil that was in the country to begin with. They were, they were told to actually conquer the Canaanites, to kick them out, to kick out the evil influence. They were told not to allow that to be part of them, and yet they disobeyed God, and they allowed the world, they allowed evil influence to be a part. They embraced the world around them. They embraced the evil ideas. They embraced sin. They became comfortable with it, complacent in it. They embraced idolatry, and idolatry led to all kinds of rampant sin. You know, the cause of evil in this world is people being enticed by sin, being complacent with sin, believing that idols, that things other than God will get us what we want by doing what's right in our own eyes. And God cares enough about that to address it. And God calls us in response to put away the evil that's in our midst. And that's the second thing that we see is that God calls us to put away the evil of sin from within our midst because God cares about the cause of evil, which is the sin in our own midst. Now get this, this account is about the Benjaminites. They are, they are fellow people of Israel. And God calls the Benjaminites through his people to account. And the people of Israel, they, they say to the Benjamites, they, they don't immediately just go and wipe them out. They actually want to carry out justice in a good way. So they say, give up the people who committed this evil. Give up the people in your midst. Give up the men of Gibeah who did this evil thing. And, and they had a choice. They could have addressed the evil in their own people. They could have addressed the evil in their own midst. They could have corrected that and, and really put those men of Gibeah to death because that's what the law of God requires is that anyone who commits abuse, anyone who commits rape, anyone who commits murder should then be murdered. That's what the law of God, at least in the Old Testament, said. And so that's what the law of God demanded and they knew that. And the Benjaminites, the appropriate response would have been to say, oh, we as a people have sinned and we've allowed this evil to grow and we've allowed these things to happen. And so they should have actually punished that evil in their own midst, but they didn't. They were not only complacent about it, they embraced them. And that's what happens. That's what happens when you fail to, to get rid of the evil within. You, you can begin to come complacent with it and then you get to the point where, like the Benjaminites, you're going to defend that. God had commanded that they got, get rid of the evil from within their midst many times in the past. And he, and he commanded them to, to deal with their own sin, to deal with their own idolatry, to put away their idols, 
to stop following after other gods, to come to return to God, to worship him. Not because God is somehow mean or vindictive or he wants to punish or because he's keeping good things from them. No, because, because we're, we're too easily prone to turn aside to things that really aren't good for us by doing what's right in our own eyes and, and turn aside to our own idols and become complacent with sin. And God says, no, I want you to turn away from those things because I want you to turn to me, the giver of life. God commanded them to rid evil among their midst, just like, you know, today. In the New Testament, it says, let judgment begin with the household of God. We're, we're called to actually put out evil from our own hearts, from our own midst. But they weren't interested. And instead, what do they do? They rally to defend these evil people. And that should shock us. How did God's own people get to the place where they rallied to defend people who, as a group, abused and were responsible for the death of this woman. They called good what was clearly evil. You wonder how did this evil happen in the world around us? How do such egregious things happen? It happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, when they justify themselves, their desires, when they, they live worshiping idols. When we tolerate evil and accept it in our midst, we can, we can normalize it and, and become so deluded that we're willing to not only accept it but defend it. And isn't that what we see happening in the world around us, that, that what was once called sin is now actually embraced and normalized and so that it's spun and flipped on his head and the things that, that God calls as sin are normalized and defended. I was thinking about a few friends of mine who have going through what they call deconstructing their faith. And I was thinking about how it didn't begin by discovering any great theological insight or understanding. It didn't begin by a deeper understanding of God, of who he is, of his word. It didn't begin by understanding what motivates our hearts. It didn't begin by, by seeing the truth. It actually began by them wanting to do what was right in their own eyes by them justifying their experience, by being led by emotions, by being convinced by their emotions, by their experience, trying to justify what they want to believe and trying to find justification any way they can. And then embracing what is actually evil and rejecting God. And it happens, it happens subtly. It happens slowly by by being led by our emotions, being led by our feelings, being led by our desires, being led by idols, being led by what we subjectively believe is true, not what God says is objectively true. When, when God gives his commands, when he gives his words, it's, it's to lead us and guide us with objective truth so that we won't be led astray. Otherwise, we live by our feelings, our emotions, our desires, or our experience. We can accept and embrace and even defend evil. And actually, it becomes inevitable. And it shouldn't surprise us one bit. And so, as we see the Benjaminites, they, have, they don't turn their fellow sinners over. They embrace them. They defend them. What's the, what's the takeaway from that? Is that we, we need to be led by the words of our king. The words of our king that, that lovingly guide us, that lead us, that, that tell us what's objectively true. But instead, 
God's people had accepted questioning God's word. And you know what? That's funny because the devil often enters in that way. You might wonder, what's the genesis of sin? Well, we see it back in the book of Genesis where, where the devil, he begins to question. He says, did God really say? And isn't God really keeping good things from you? And inherently now, the people of Gibeah, they thought that God was keeping good things from them, but the good things they thought God was keeping from them were absolutely horrific. But the devil's tactics really haven't changed. He still incites people the same way by questioning God's word. Did God really say? Does God really take sin seriously? Does he really want us to obey him? Is he really serious about idolatry? Is God just keeping good from us? And the devil enticed Adam and Eve with a lie that they would know God and become like God. But ironically, they became less like God. Understanding it was diminished by the devil. Don't, don't fall for the lies of the devil. Don't fall for the lies of the devil. Accepting sin as normal, becoming complacent with it, toying with idolatry. That's what the people of Benjamin did. All too often, people believe the lies of the devil that, that God somehow wants to keep good from us, but what God's trying to do is actually keep evil from us. Anytime God says no to something or withholds something from us, it's actually for our good. But, but subjectively, at times, it's difficult to believe that. For whatever reason, the Benjaminites believed that it was best for them to defend these evil people. And so they were willing to die to sacrifice for a lie, to sacrifice for sin, to sacrifice for what seemed right in their own eyes. But God called them to bring them out. He called them to discipline the evil in their own midst. And you think that's just an Old Testament concept, by the way, disciplining evil in the midst, but it translates over to the New Testament as well. And one of the applications of that is that we're actually called to church discipline. We're called to take sin seriously, not just in our own lives, but we're called to take sin seriously when we see a brother sinning and we go to them, we're to speak to them like brothers and, and, and call them back to repentance, not because we're trying to be mean and rule followers, but no, we want them to love God, to know God, to follow God, to not be separated from God. And so we're actually called to discipline the evil in our own midst. And the goal is not to put people out of the church permanently. The goal is to encourage people to respond to God, to repent, because we take seriously Sin in our own lives, sin in our own myths. We want to deal with it and be restored to God. That doesn't mean we should be sin inspectors. I'm not talking about that. But unrepentant sin needs to be dealt with. And there's sin here. The Benjaminites were clearly unrepentant because they didn't respond to the call to put out sin in their midst. God caused 400,000 men of Israel to come against them. He calls us to, to put away the evil of sin in our midst, and he also commands us to fight the evil of sin. That's what we see. God, God calls us to, he commands us to fight the evil of sin. He takes it so seriously that he rallies 400,000 people and they went up against these 26,000 Benjaminites. Now, he, the author makes a little note and it's kind of an interesting thing and you might just say it's a, it's a weird note that it says that they, they were 700 of them were able to, to sling stones and they could hit a hair you know, at a distance. You know, they were so good that they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. But before you think, a stone is like the little slingshot you got when you're Anybody get a little slingshot when you were a kid? You have a little, little plastic slingshot or something when you were a kid? And, and I, I got a little older. I got that, I got that nice rubber tube one with the, the metal, and it's holding. It can shoot pretty far. It's pretty good. I wasn't really good with it. But slings like this, they look really simple, right? But they could sling a stone, even just a plain stone, a field stone, over 100 yards at 100 miles an hour. 
It actually had the same force of a 44 Magnum hitting them. So don't think, oh, they just were slingers. No, the reason probably why the Benjaminites were so good is because they lived right beside the Philistines and they had 700 stone slingers. That's why they were able to kill 40,000 people of Israel. 26,000 people with 700 stone slingers. They were expert marksmen. Think of them as sharpshooters or snipers. And they killed 40,000 men of Israel. They, the men of Israel asked God at first, they said, hey, who should go up against who should go up against them? Before they went to fight, they gave the Benjaminites a chance, and then they actually sought the Lord. I said, who, who, would go, who should go up against them? And, and the response was that, that Judah should go up. And, and that, should, that should clue us in. This is towards the very end of the book, the very beginning of the book. We saw back in Judges 1, and, and verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who should go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them? And the Lord said, Judah should go up. Behold, I've given the land at his hand. Now, Here's the thing, they didn't. They didn't drive the Benjaminites, I mean the Canaanites out. Now Judah's called to go up, not to exercise justice on the evil without, but now they're called to go first in judging the evil within. Now there's some interesting tidbits here in the story. Gibeah is actually the city that, that Saul would come from. And he's a Benjaminite and, and Judah, the one who's to lead. David came from the city of Judah, from, from Bethlehem in the city of Judah. And he was called to go up. And he was called to, to lead the way in putting out sin. He was called to lead the way in conquering. He ultimately didn't. But there's another from Judah that was called to go up and fight in our place. It was called to go up and fight first. But the reason why we have these problems in the book of Judges is because they didn't. They, they were complacent with sin. This, this war, it cost them much. It cost them at the hands of once, those who were once with them. And so they sit before the Lord. They fast. They offer burnt offerings. They offer sacrifices. Twenty-some thousand of the men have already died by the time they come up to the Lord again. And they're weeping. They're crying. And you would think that God would tell them to back off. But no. What God tells them is to no, press in. Press in. They have to fight and trust him. Three times they ask God, who will go up against us? Where do we go? God, God, should we fight against them? And then the last time they say, God, should we fight against our brothers? And God says, yes, go, because tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. But here's the thing. In the fight against sin, it won't be easy. This, this fight was ordained by God. And so because of that, you might be shocked when you see that you know, three different quantities of of men were killed so that 40-some thousand men were killed. But it was actually at the direction of God, God knowing that people would die in the fight. You think, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Did God not care? No, it's not that he didn't care, but, but he wants us to see that sometimes the fight will be costly. The fight against sin in our own lives, the fight against removing sin from our midst, the fight against evil, the fight against the remaining sin in our own lives, sometimes it is costly, it is difficult, it hurts, it's painful, it will cause weeping, but that doesn't mean that we're to back off. God promised to give them victory. Actually, God promises one day that not only has he already achieved victory in Christ, but he'll one day give us complete victory over sin, but in the meanwhile, we're called to fight trusting in him didn't mean they'd have to do anything even after God promised to give them the land even after now here God's promised that he'll deliver them into their hands the men still die 
they still had the fight. They still had to employ some strategic battle tactics. And I like the, the account there, the drawn out account of if you're a military historian, you like reading about battles, you can see that, that really they set up this elaborate ambush of the Benjaminites. And you might think, well, that was devious. No, it was actually good tactics, good battle tactics. And, and in our fight against sin, we might have to employ some good battle tactics. People of Israel, they use their skill, they plan, they fought, they launch an ambush, this counterattack. They employed these good military tactics. They surround the Benjamites. They were able to defeat them. But the author, he knew what, who was really responsible for the victory. And it says, and the Lord, it says, and the Lord gave them into their hands and the, and the people of Israel fought against the Benjamites and, and had victory. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's not like God's, God gave them into their hands so they didn't have to do anything. No, God gave them into their hands. God gave them the victory and they fought. You know, I've got a a friend, and for many, many years, he was battling a temptation. And, and he struggled because he, he couldn't understand why he continued to have this temptation. He would pray, and he would seek the Lord, and he did Bible studies, and he did everything he can. He'd just pray, God, remove this temptation. God, if you really love me, remove this temptation from me. God, you must not hear me. You must not love me. You must not want what's best for me because I still have this temptation that remains. And he would pray that way all the time. But it, it never happened. He still, the temptations remained. And it wasn't because God didn't hear his prayer. God wanted him to fight. God wanted him to grow, to learn battle tactics, to address the enemy within. And the presence of temptation, by the way, does not mean that we are doomed to fail. It doesn't mean that we're, God doesn't hear our prayers. It doesn't mean we should give up or give in because we're just, we're, we're thinking, I'm just made that way, so I'm gonna give into it. no. God's already given his children all that they need for victory. He actually has won the victory. He'll give us the victory, but he calls us to fight. And he uses our faith-filled resistance against remaining sin to, to make us stronger and trust that he'll give us the victory. Our battle, battle, we're not called like the Israelites to go and fight against people who are sinning physically, by no means. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't have slings. But, but he's given us other weapons. He's given us all of the armor, the full armor of God. He's given us the weapon of the shield of faith, the helmet of our salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the, our feet being covered with the gospel of peace. Every step we take, our, our very core being bound by his truth. We're given the sword of spirit to do battle. But the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. It says in verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin. Then it makes a, a description in 44 to 46, all the details of those who were struck down, the men of Benjamin, routed so significant, only 600 of them were left. And then it talks about what they did afterwards, that the ending is, it is awful. You see, they, they did what they were called to do to the, Benjamin, to the Canaanites. They were called to, to completely eradicate them, to burn their cities with fire. Now they have to do the same thing because they were complacent with sin in the first place complacent with idolatry. And even in this account, the people of Benjamin could have avoided the devastation of their tribe if only they purged the evil from their midst. If only they dealt with the sin in their own midst first. But instead, the people of Israel and the Benjaminites, they all paid dearly. And all told, because of this one woman's abuse and murder, God cared so deeply about it. He wanted them to 
get rid of the evil in their midst, and he wanted them to fight against it. But it was costly. There's 66,000 people died because of this, because of their disobedience, because of their failure to fight, because of their failure to remove sin. The Benjaminites, they, they actually got what they deserved for their sin, for their idolatry and their disobedience, and so did the people of Israel. They weren't completely innocent. And I think this, this whole passage just shows us that God cares about the cause of evil so much that he deals with it himself directly. Three times it says, they, they sought the Lord and the Lord dealt with it. The Lord says, go up, go up, go up. He cared about it. He cared about evil so much, the cause of evil. He cares about the remaining sin that he, he deals with. He tells them to deal with it and he deals with it. He gives them the victory himself. Now we see though, that's the case for us too. In just a few minutes, we're going to receive communion. I'll go ahead and have the ushers get up and begin to pass out the, the juice and the gluten-free bread. And I and welcome anyone, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can, you're welcome to share in communion with us. At the same time, if you're a believer and you're unreconciled or in un unrepentant sin or if you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation, or if you're an unbeliever, we'd ask that you just let the juice and the, and the bread pass you by. No one's going to look at you funny. Nobody's going to ask you questions. You can go ahead and begin to pass it out. That'd be great. You know, the passage that we've just focused on, it's all about the fact that God cares about those who are hurting. He cares about the cause of sin. And the Benjaminites, they, they failed to deal with the, the cause of sin in their midst. They didn't rid themselves of their own sin. And it's also about God justly punishing people for their sins. You know, sin, idolatry, disobedience against our holy God, against our loving creator and our rightful king, it deserves punishment. It deserves judgment. And to keep us from self-righteousness, we need to see that we, we really are no different in many ways than the Benjaminites. We allow sin to remain in our own lives. We become complacent and sometimes we defend it as well. Too often we fail to fight against sin that remains. Too often we're complacent. We give in to idolatry. We disobey God. We embrace sin. On our own, we deserve to be punished by God. On our own merits, we deserve to be wiped out like the Benjaminites were. On our own merits, we deserve to be put to the fire, to be wiped out completely. And we all deserve punishment on our own for where we failed in sin, failed to fight sin. What we celebrated in baptism is that our hope is not in ourselves. What we celebrate in communion is that our hope is not in ourselves. In baptism, we see this, this glorious picture that we confess that we were dead in our sins, unable, unable to stop sinning. And so we consider ourselves dead with Christ, dead to sin. And that he raises us up to new life in him. That's our hope. Our hope is in him. And that he's dealt with the punishment of sin himself. Jesus actually cared so much about each and every one of us that he came. Because God cares about each and every person who's suffering, each and every person who's abused, each and every person who's hurting. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, he says, when the, 
the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God cares about all who are suffering and hurting because of sin. He cares so much that he sent his only son to live the life that we could not, to be sinless in every way. He cares about us so much that he didn't just send his son to live a perfect life in, in our place, but he sent his son to take all the punishment that our sin deserves on himself. He came to suffer the consequences we deserve for not putting sin away. He came to suffer the consequences for our failure to fight against sin. And Jesus came to die and to take the punishment for our sins. And that's what we remember in communion today. As we eat the bread, we, we're, I'd like you to remember that he cares about you personally. Enough to take your sin, my sin, on himself instead of punishing us for it. So let's eat the bread together remembering that. As we drink the juice, it represents the fact that, that Jesus shed his own blood to enact a new covenant, a new agreement that's not based on our efforts, not based on our works, but wholly based on his finished work, the cross, and that, that his sins, our, our sins have been covered by his blood in every way, that he no longer looks at us seeking punishment, but all who place their faith in Christ's shed blood and in his covenant between God and man that all of our sins are washed away, that we've been made clean. So let's drink with hope, knowing we've been reconciled to God. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He already had the victory. Now, one day, he'll completely remove all sin from us. But today, we fight sin knowing that he has the victory and he'll enable us to fight. He's already declared it. So we do that in remembrance of the fact that it is already finished. The price has been paid. He's already won the victory. And, and in him, we can trust in him to put sin away and fight knowing he cares for us. Let's stand and sing. Thank you, Jesus.